Father, I thank you for this this morning that we can gather together as as believers, that we can gather together to continue studying through your word, learning more how to study your word, to get the most out of it, to understand what you would have to speak to us today. I pray that you would be with us during this time, that you would bless the time that we have, and that this would be a a productive and a useful time for all. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so last week, we came to the very end of the, dif- of the different chapters and the different skills that we were going through in our book, uh, Inductive Bible Study, by uh, Richard Kerr and uh, Andreas Kostenberger. And what we're going to do for the next few weeks is we're going to bring this all together. What does this look like as we approach a single unit of text from the Bible to make sense of this, you know, to do our observation, to do our interpretation, to do our application, and to apply all of these skills that we've learned to one text of the Bible. The plan kind of moving forward is that for each of the next three weeks, we would spend time on one particular step in the same text. So this week, we're going to be on observation. So all we're going to be doing this week is practicing the various observation skills that we learned way back when, in June or July, when we started going through this. And the text, that, the text that we're going to be going through today, it's one that probably most of us are f- certainly familiar with the story, um, but maybe it's been a while since we've read it. Maybe we've, never, maybe we've never really looked at it in terms of what are all the details that are there getting into the nitty-gritty, but... It's probably a story that all of us have been familiar with from probably relatively early on in our walk of faith. So the text that we're going to be in today, and I, I did a printout of the text that we're going to be in. So and the reason I did a printout is so that feel free to write on this, to circle, to make notes as we're going through. But hold on to this because we're going to be in the same text next week and the week after. So the text that we're going to be in this week is Jonah chapter 1. So we'll be in for the next three weeks, and we will use that passage to guide us through the steps of inductive Bible study. The big thing today, kind of to stay on track, is we're not going to be doing interpretation and application today. Those will come next week and the week after. But we really want to take the time to workshop a text, to really work through it. Um, You'll notice a number of different Bibles on the table in front of you. Each one is a different translation. uh, Because one of the steps in observation that we learned very early on is about choosing our translation and comparing translations. So the easiest way to do that is we just have a number of different translations in front of us. Um, so 
as we're going through this, feel free to pick a translation that you would like to compare. The print-off text is the ESV. Um, but we've got a number of different translations. We have NIV, the CSB, HCSB, ASV, King James. Yeah, there's like 10 or 11 different translations. Feel free to look at one. Feel free to look at multiple to see you know, as we begin to identify, you know, are there differences in how translators translated certain words, phrases, or ideas? Because that's part of our observation steps of, of identifying terms that may be uncertain in the text. The steps that we'll be going through, you know, kind of first off, right out of the gate, comparing translations, what's there? Are there things worded differently? We'll, be, we'll figure out, you know, asking the right questions of the text. And typically, you know, the, the text in front of us will both ask and answer the questions that it's asking. We'll be identifying significant terms. You know, are there words that seem to carry the weight and meaning of the text? Sometimes these significant terms are also uncertain terms that maybe one translation translates this word or phrase one way, but another translation translates it differently. We'll be observing different literary features. Are there repetition? Are there, is there symbolic speech? Are there figurative speech? And then we'll, just be, we'll be identifying the literary unit. Does the whole first chapter of Jonah comprise one unit? Or are there really multiple units and multiple sections within that chapter that really we need to break it down in order to identify it? So like I said, you know, the ESV text is what was printed off um, and a number of different translations in front. So actually before we go running through this, Let's take a moment, and we'll just read through Jonah chapter 1. Um, I've got it open right here in front. Actually, all of us should have it in front. I'll read through it quickly. It's 17 verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that, the great city, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go up with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Just kind of a quick interruption. This might be a time if you want to open up in one of the different translations to Jonah 1 to kind of follow along and as we're going through seeing if a translation translates words or ideas differently. But the Lord, I'm picking up in verse 4 here. I'll give a second for people to get there. Okay. 
So, like I said, the, the advantage of doing this is as we're reading through the text, we can identify um, we can identify different words and fra- you know, words or phrases that may be translated differently as we're going through. And that's, that's that first step. We're comparing translations. We're starting in Jonah chapter 1. We're going to start right at the beginning. And I'll back up and I'll read those first three verses again. There, and there, like I said, there are some translations here that are probably reasonably familiar to most of us. You know, there's King James, NIV, ESV. Um, there are some that are probably not so common. Um, I think Ken, the one that you have there is the American Standard. Won't you? Ah, uh, yeah, it's it's the American Standard. <laughs> yeah, it's. That's the American Standard Text. Um, Phil, I think the translation you have in front of you is the New American Bible, which is, interestingly, is, was at one point, and actually may still be, the standard translation of the U.S. Count, or US Council of Bishops um, for the Catholic Church in America. So, it may be interesting to see, did they translate things differently? I think, Robin, you've got the CSB in front of you. We've got NET, KJV, and it looks like maybe HCSB, and NIV. Okay, that's a good assortment of different translation philosophies. So I'll start at Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, so there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, 
What is this that you have done? For the, man, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, and he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So as we're going through this, oh yes, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Just about missed the whole... (laughs) Chapter 2 would have started out kind of weirdly if we'd not finished up that. Um, So is there anything in the text, as as I'm reading along and reading the ESV, was there anything in in a particular translation that you were looking at that that seemed like it was more than just a stylistic difference? Were there words that seemed like they were translated differently that that may have given significant meaning to the text? Or was it all, did it all seem pretty straightforward? Okay. And that'll happen. You know, on, on texts, especially texts that are pretty clear on the meaning, you know, across translations, we should see you know, we should see that things are pretty close. It may be wording choice, you know, wording differences um, based on, you know, for example, the King James. It's Elizabethan English versus the CSB that was is less than five years old. Um, the English language has changed over time. Okay. But in the ESV, what do you mean, you sleeper? It's almost like a, it's almost like he's there's a lot of there's a lot of fights words in Yeah. In the ESV, I feel like it's 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 less as strong as what are you doing sound asleep? So it's less like it's the, the, the concept of being asleep is not like a name. Okay. So, yeah, so it sounds more like they're asking, and maybe with a certain amount of confusion because it's the middle of a storm, they're busy, rather than, yeah, the ESV, it's this very accusative, like, how dare you? Okay. So there's, there's a difference there in, in maybe tone. Okay. 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 
Yeah, so, okay, so again, kind of more of the inquisitive asking, like, what are you doing here? <laughs> Rather than, yeah, the ESV, it's this very accusative, and you could almost see, you know, it's ending in a question mark in the English, but in the ESV, it could just as well have ended in an, excl- in an exclamation point, this exasperated, what are you doing? Sure. Are there any other differences in wording that could convey a different tone than maybe what the ESV did? It was still six, but this one's saying, What meanest thou, O sleeper? What meanest thou, O sleeper? You have the King James, don't you? Okay. Are there any other differences in meaning of or in translation? Again, if if that's the only one, that's totally okay. Again, it's a lot of times in translations, we're not ninety nine percent of the time we're not going to come across significant differences and typically when we come across significant differences in wording what that means is that underlying it there may be a translation uncertainty but if things are relatively straightforward and across translations what we may be looking at is that there's really not translation uncertainty in this text and that's a good thing can you think of a book or more specifically a passage where there will be a bigger translation difference across different translations of Bible? So one, um, well, so one that I can think of kind of off the top of my head was a couple weeks ago in our Bible study, um, some translations translated the word as infants other translations translated it as gentle. And that the difference there could have just been the difference between a new and the original Greek and how we interpret that. So that could show up as a difference. Um, there are a number of other that I know of, but no, no specific references are popping up in my head. But that's one just recently that we've gone through where there, there was a pretty significant word choice difference. On the whole, it doesn't necessarily significantly affect the overall meaning of the text, but it is a pretty significant difference in word choice. So we really don't, it doesn't seem like as we're comparing translations here that we really have any points across translators, and not just across translators, but um, across time. And we have the King James, you know, 1611 through, you know, the CSB, you know, 2000, what, 17, 2018. So 400 years, and translators across a 400-year span have pretty much read this text the same way. We can have a lot of confidence there. So, 
the next step is we've, is we've identified or compared translations that maybe there's not really a whole lot of differences among translations, but we do want to ask some questions of the text that help us frame what we're reading. Some of these questions can be historical context and recipients. What's the historical context of the book of Jonah? Do we know? Some... Some of you may have study Bibles in front of you that may give a little bit of the historical context. Some may know the context of it right off the bat. What's the historical context of Jonah? So what's some of the historical background? Are there cities in there that were that were talked about that would give a historical context. The one, the one that he's told to go to, Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So this is going to put this probably in the time of 700, six, between 6 and 700 BC. Maybe even a little bit. But it, it's going to be relatively early in the time of the prophets. We're told to go to, do we know who the recipients of Jonah were? Was this a letter that was written to somebody? Does the, does the text give us any indication that this is a letter that it was, ri- that it was written to? Yeah, okay. So it's some narrative. It's not, it's not necessarily written to anybody in particular, but it's more of a narrative of a, historic, of a historical event that happened. Was it, was it written to anybody? Or um, do we know who the author of Jonah was? Does the text tell us who the author is? Nope, we have no idea. So we have no idea really who the author is. We know who the main character is. That's the Jonah. <laughs> um, it's not necessarily written to anybody. Do we know what the, what the genre is? You know, is this narrative? Is this poetry? Is this a letter? Is this apocalyptic literature? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So the book itself, there's prophecy, especially once we get beyond, you know, once we get beyond Jonah chapter one, there's a lot of prophecy. In fact, at the beginning, we're told, you know, God told Jonah to go. To Nineveh and to call out against it. You know, another way of wording that is prophesy against the city. What about the chapter one? Chapter one seems to be more narrative, doesn't it? It's just laying the groundwork. This is what happened. This is the background for everything that's coming next. God told Jonah, do this. And Jonah's response was, I'm not doing this. I'm going to do this. 
So we're... Is there any other context that we have here that could help us out? Okay. Yeah, so we can, we can get some context from Jonah's response that going to Nineveh was not exactly on the top of his list of things to do that there was some type of conflict or some type of enmity between, at least between Jonah and Nineveh, that, is, that may well be representative of a bigger conflict between Israel and Nineveh. Sure. That's, so that's some, that's some very good context to understand Jonah's response. And also... Does it raise another question? If Israel is the nation of promise, if, if Israel is God's chosen people, why is God sending a prophet of Israel to not Israel? That seems like a, that seems like a huge question of the text. And we're not necessarily told in chapter 1 other than, Go prophesy against them. Most of this is, most of chapter one is spent on the nature of Jonah not doing what God told him to do. And we know later that it was ultimately a message, a, a prophecy of, you know, repent. But we don't know that from chapter 1. You can infer it based on call out against it, and this is what prophets do. Right. Call out against a city that's wicked, that evil has come up before me, and then we'll preach against that city. We can infer right. the message of repentance. Which then, then could also add some background to why did Jonah turn and run? We ask the question, why is God sending a prophet of Israel to not Israel to preach against it for their repentance? You know, turn from your, turn from your wickedness or you'll be destroyed. That seems like a pretty big question. You know, why is God doing this? And he's sending him alone. Yeah, it's not like, hey Jonah, go to Nineveh with your army and preach against <laughs> It's, it's, sure. But yeah, he's going alone, he's going alone to Nineveh. The Assyrians were not nice people to their enemies. They, what's that? <laughs> they, 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 contrary, <laughs> Contrary to Veggie Tales, they weren't fish slappers. They, they threw the, they hung the bodies of their enemies over the walls. So maybe Jonah's running because I don't want that to happen to me. I've heard what happens to them. Okay. Do we know how this relates to the surrounding text? We do, we're, this is Jonah 1, so we don't really have any background of what came before. 
from what we know of Jonah, does this relate to the to surrounding text? Sure. So it's, it's going to explain how he got here. Do we know, does, does the book of Jonah happen to be referenced in other parts of Scripture? Does it pop up other places? Jesus, Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah. It's not one that pops up a whole lot, but there are places. Okay, it's the only other time that Jonah is referenced. But going back to questions of context, that does give us a certain historical context that the northern kingdom of Israel still exists. So we know that this is before 722 BC when Sennacherib sacked the kingdom of Israel. So this this is relatively early on in the Old Testament prophets that we have recorded. And we also know from that that Jonah was an, he was an active prophet, like yeah. a legit active prophet. Yeah, this, was, this probably was not the first time that God just picked up Jonah out of, out of obscurity and said, go here. We know from, was it First Kings? Second. Second, we know from Second Kings, Jonah was a known prophet in Israel. Yeah. So we have so we have a context that even more support that this is a historical this is reflective of historical events because it shows up in the histories in the histories of Israel. We know when this happened. Not exact date, but we know that, okay, this is before the fall of Jerusalem. You know, so the Assyrians are up on the northern border of the kingdom of Israel waiting. They, there had been battles and skirmishes between the northern kingdom. At this time, the northern kingdom was essentially a vassal state of the Assyrians. They had to send tribute to keep them, to keep them happy. In fact, what we know from history is what ultimately prompted the Assyrians to sack Israel and to take it over was that the northern kingdom of Israel failed to send the tributes to the Assyrian king. And so they said, okay, you don't give us money, we take your land. So the Assyrians were also a known quantity in Israel at this time, and it wasn't good. The Assyrians not just were not Israel, they were Israel's active oppressor. So God is sending a prophet of Israel to Israel's enemy, not just their enemy, but their oppressor, to say repent. Are there words, phrases, or ideas 
that are repeating throughout this text? Do, thing, do we see words, phrases, or ideas pop up repeatedly throughout this text? So the presence of the Lord. Yeah, we see in verse 10, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Yeah, fleeing, <laughs> fleeing from the presence of the Lord twice. We even see not, not that exact phrase, but in verse 2, their evil has come up before me. There's a certain idea of, a presence of the Lord. Something that I had noticed is that the, there's a repeated description of the storm as tempestuous. And it's not, just, it's not just mentioned once, but every time the storm in the sea is mentioned in Jonah 1, it's described as tempestuous. Okay. Stylistic, but still it's every time rather than just saying the storm, every time the storm is brought up, there's a description of this is really bad, guys. This isn't just a mild storm on the sea. This is really bad. This could kill you all. When you think about it, it was a storm enough to make this even say worse. Yeah. Yeah. There is a whole lot of hurling. <laughs> a whole lot of hurling. The... That picture of hurling and repeated, it gives, me the, it gives me the mental picture of that. This was a chaotic scene. They were desperate and they're just chucking anything overboard that's not nailed down. Because by lightening the weight of the ship, the ship sits higher in the water and the waves don't crash over as much. They have a better chance of surviving. Are there other words, phrases, or ideas that pop up in this text? Uh, fear. Fear. Evil. Fear, evil. Yeah. Good. Fleeing. fleeing. Yeah. Fleeing. And specifically, fleeing God. Fleeing, when Ken said, you know, the presence of the Lord pops up, well, it doesn't just, the presence of the Lord just doesn't pop up like, hey, here I am, you're in my presence. It, the presence of the Lord triggers a response every time it shows up in this chapter. Here's God, I'm running. Here's God, I'm running. So the idea of rebellion is present. A, pro a prophet of God, a prophet of the Lord, rebelling against him. That seems... <laughs> that seems significant, y'all. 
Yeah. Yeah. So there's, so when we talk about relationship, there, there's a certain relatability that we can have with this text, which is really good. And remember that, like, especially as we get to application that, hey, you know, I'm not Jonah and Jonah's not me, and yet, I kind of get where Jonah's coming from here. There's questions of intention. Do we know why the author writes? Or it should be writes. Do we know why the author wrote what he wrote and how he wrote it? We're not really told. We don't even know who, I mean, we don't even really know who the author is. We know that there's prophecy coming up. We know that there's a narrative. There's, yeah, there's a lesson. Is it clear what that lesson is yet? From, th- from, this, from this chapter, is it clear what that lesson is? <laughs> Don't run from God or you'll end up in the belly of a fish. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so we're, we're getting some ideas of intention, you know, running from the Lord. What about, what about God's mercy to his enemies, to his people's enemies? God is sending one of his prophets to his, pe- to his people's oppressor, not to destroy them, but to call them to repentance. So there's also a description of mercy. Phil, I saw your hand. Yeah. So maybe, well, so with that, knowing what's coming ahead, maybe we start getting a faint inkling that there's a salvation available to more than just Israel. We don't, that's not fully fleshed out in the text, but there's we're getting an inkling that maybe God has bigger plans that involve more than just the nation of Israel. Can you look like you were going to say something? Well, I just had a... I, I, I see, because I've read ahead. But totally okay. The, the thing that just struck me is, is, wait a second, we're not told that, did, that Jonah actually called them to repentance. In verse, in chapter 3, all he does, Jonah set out, But what's recorded is, you're going to burn. <laughs> and then the king's response is, all right, well, we should repent because who knows? Maybe God will have mercy on us. Hoping that God yeah. will have mercy. Not knowing for sure that they would receive mercy. So without a promise of mercy, they just hope for mercy. And God being God, 
but also knew what their response was going to be. But he didn't reveal that to Jonah. So... Maybe we get a picture of what obedience to God is supposed to look like. God tells us to do something, but he doesn't always reveal the scope of his plan. Does that lessen our obligation to obedience? I find it interesting that the the story of Jonah is one often told to children. That's a kid's favorite within the Christian sure. realm. Um, Especially since Veggie Tales. Uh, yeah, that's a great Veggie Tales. <laughs> but, and that's a lesson, that's a hard lesson as parents to teach children is obedience first, find out, maybe find out why later. Yeah. It's, I just find that interesting that this is this is a great opportunity to teach to teach children well and to remind ourselves as adults that, that sometimes even as adults we're not even told why we're supposed to do something. Phil, I think maybe the, the man on the ship that was divided went on the way to and shared his story with the Ninevites. Yeah. You know, it, it definitely is speculation. You know, did they did did they get back to dry land and did they did they kind of prepare the way of hey, there's this guy and we chucked him overboard. But let me tell you what just happened to us. I mean it it's pure speculation well beyond the text. Tarshish is the op- complete, like the reason why he's sailing to Tarshish is to go in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh. Yeah. Nineveh's landlocked, way this away. He hops on a boat and goes as far as he can that way. So he's trying to put as much distance between Nineveh and himself as he humanly possibly can. Sure. And God says, nope, <laughs> you're coming over here, spits him up, and then has to travel back. Right. That, that wasn't their intended destination. Sure. Yeah. We talked about so other big quest- questions of the text, big picture questions. And we these have, the big picture questions have kind of come up along the way, you know, what big picture, you know, what does obedience to God look like? The big picture questions, why would God send a prophet of Israel to not Israel? knowing that when they hear this message, they're going to repent. When the covenant, at this time, context, old covenant. The covenant was made just with Israel. The covenant wasn't made with Assyria. 
And yet God is sending one of his prophets to a people to whom the covenant wasn't given that they would repent. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are, there's kind of inklings that even in the Old Testament, 700 and some odd years before Christ, before the Messiah, that maybe there's redemption, maybe there's salvation for more than just Israel. Yeah. Like I said, we don't see, we don't see that fully fleshed out. You know, we're, we're told by Paul that, you know, the church was a mystery that wasn't revealed to the prophets. And yet we can look back in the prophets and we can see there's, huh, there's something bigger here. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to pick up on this next week because we, we got through two of the five steps. Um, yeah, there's, and that, that's, the, that's the really neat and amazing thing that when we start digging into a text of Scripture inductively and really looking at what's there, there's a lot there. I mean, this, the story of Jonah is a story that probably all of us have heard for decades. We probably heard it when we were very young. We probably all sang the songs that were related to Jonah. There are songs. We probably all saw the flannel graphs. <laughs> this is a story that the narrative of which we're probably really familiar with. And yet, how, many how often do we actually dig into the text to really see what's there? There's a lot there. And we're, two, we're only two of the five steps through observation, so we're going to pick up on observation next week. Yeah, I had had three weeks planned you know, for observation, interpretation, application, fully expecting that if there was one that was going to take two weeks, it was going to be observation because this is just the information gathering. What's there? What do we make of it? Um, so this is good. This is really good discussion. So let's, let's kind of wrap up here. This is a good breaking point in the text. Or in, yeah. And let's close in, some, in prayer. Father, I thank you for this time that we have that, to be able to dig through, to dig through a book and a, a story in the Bible that we don't often really dig into and really look to see what's there. And Father, thank you for, for your revealed word to us, that, that your word is truly knowable, and consequently that, that you are truly knowable, that, that you are not a God who has, who has hidden himself from us, but has revealed himself to us in, in his word, that you have seen fit to have recorded for us today. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.